0: Welcome to the Other Side of Paradise.
1: I share my story, uh, not just to help others, but it also helps me remember where I came from.
0: Joining me is Ken Lawson of the University of Hawaii's Law School and co-director of the Hawaii Innocence Project. Lawson is truly a comeback story. Once an attorney with status and wealth, drug addiction cost him both but beating that addiction was just one of the many battles in his life in this edition we learn more about his childhood a painful beginning
1: i was born in cincinnati and i was born in 1963 but i was placed into an orphanage and i was there as an, as an orphanage in an orphanage for two years then i was adopted into a family where uh, Everybody in the family's uh um, dark skinned black American, and so I have a brother, two brothers, and a sister. They were all the biological siblings you know and everybody else was related but me by blood and so from a very young age, I just didn't feel like I fit in. I always felt like apart from and not a part of and it wasn't just because I was adopted right I mean I felt that same way in grade school class i was I was sitting in class thinking, you know everybody seems to understand. What's going? You know how to get along in life, right? But I just felt like apart from, and not a part of. I was raised Catholic. I remember going to the Catholic church, right? And it's just like everybody here knows how to be good, and I could be good for like a week or two, and I revert back to those same that same bad behavior. And I remember just feeling like uh, different. And I can't tell you, no. My father was an alcoholic, and so my daddy. I mean, I wouldn't know if I was getting my ass beat by the way that my father came home at night. You know, 2 o'clock in the morning, the front door slams. Me and my younger brother, we shared a a bunk bed. Our bathroom was right next to our bedroom. And my father was a big man, over 6 feet and weighed like 220 pounds. So you could tell by the way he was stomping, right, that he he had been drinking. He'd come in, he'd pull me out of the bed. He'd take an extension cord from the iron that you iron your clothes with. And he'd take me downstairs in the basement, and he'd just beat me. Right. Sometimes if I had gotten in trouble at school, he'd beat me, right? And he'd say, you know, uh, why'd you do it? You don't know who knows, right? One time I had so much blood on me, my brother George came down and he saw me. He just threw up, right? And, and so, I, and, and, you know, to an 8-, 9-year-old kid, it doesn't look like your father has alcoholism. See, to me it looked like, you know what, well, maybe if I stopped getting in trouble at school, my father loved me enough not to beat me like this. Maybe if I become good in sports the way he was, my daddy loved me enough not to beat me like this. And so I didn't see him with the problem. I saw me with the problem. And and none of that is the reason why I ended up going to the penitentiary and being a drug addict and alcoholic. Now When I, when I first came into recovery, my thought was, if you lived my life, you would understand why I'm a drug addict. You would understand why I'm an alcoholic, right? But it's not so much what happened to me that made me end up the way that I did. That's where I reacted to it. So from a young age, you know, I just felt like I had this hole in my soul. It was just like, you know, something was all, it just seemed like something was missing. And I, I don't know what, how old I was when I thought about this. But at some point in my life, I kept thinking, in order to fill this emptiness in my soul, this hole in my soul, maybe if I be, get a good education, make a lot of money, get a good job, gain some power, become well-known, you know what I mean? If, if this happens, then I'll be happy. See, happiness wasn't something that I could enjoy in the moment. Happiness was always something that was going to come once I got to a certain point in my life. If I meet the right woman, I'll be happy. If I get the right job, I'll be happy. Man, when I get this raise, I'm going to be happy.
0: In high school, Ken's life began to change. He became aggressive toward others and, like his father, turned to alcohol.
1: I was very angry. I used to fight a lot. get kicked out for fighting. And I found out that, you know, if, if, when I lost my temper, people respected me then, right? And so it's hard to, I was really scared. I was scared of people. And so I wouldn't go out to uh, parties or anything like that um, because I was so fearful of people. Like I mean, one guy, you know, came up to me and said, you know what, I don't like you. And I just punched him, right? And once I did that, and he was a lot bigger than me. And once I did that, everybody said, you know what, man, Kenny ain't afraid of nothing. And so I started, you know, having a temper, and my anger started playing out. Alcohol then made me okay with me, and it made me okay with you. Alcohol put me in the moment. See, if I didn't have nothing to drink, I could sit in classes during during high school or, or uh, grade school, and I'm either thinking about something I'd done yesterday or what I'm going to do when I get out of here, right? And I can't breathe not one breath of air into yesterday because it's gone. I can't take not one breath into tomorrow because it's not here yet. The only time I can breathe is like right now, which means the only time I can live is right here, right now. But I don't know how to stay in the moment. I don't know how to be present, and this is where we live life right now, right? But I, that's not me. But when I drank alcohol, right, it had a different effect on me than it had on you know most of my friends who are not alcoholics. But when I drank alcohol, that hole in my soul it went away. That 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 feeling of apart from and not a part of that went away. I could I could go into a party sober, right? Be 30, 40 people in the party. And I'd be afraid, you know, I look over there and, and and I'm sober and I'm thinking, you know, these people don't want to talk to me. If I go over there and ask her to dance, she's gonna be like, no, nah, I ain't dancing with you, right? So I'm stuck on that wall. And after two or three drinks, everything else stays the same, but but my perception has changed. Now it's like, okay, yeah, I look at, over at her and she looks like she wants to talk to me. She in fact I think she wants me to come over there and ask her to dance, right? All these people in here now wanna meet me. And so all that 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 whole attitude changed underneath that, you know, alcohol. It just changed my perception, right? And and for that time period, it just filled that hole in my soul.
0: His aggression and drinking carried on into college, where he was eventually kicked out of school. It wasn't until then that he realized he had an alcohol problem.
1: I went on to college. I got thrown out after my first semester for drinking uh, alcohol. I was drinking um, we drank everything, but I would always get into fights, and so I got kicked out after two semesters um, for fighting. And then I I went off and and just this was the first time I thought I was had an alcohol problem. So I was working as a lifeguard at a, at a local swimming pool. Didn't have to be in work till eleven o'clock that each morning. So I would drink all night. I would drink a fifth of vodka at night, and then I rode my motorcycle, drunk. And I did that for like three months straight. And I thought, I, I, I was thinking, you know, I'm not going to be able to quit. The school called me. They sent me a letter, my college year, at University, saying, you know, you're off probation. You're allowed to come back. And, that, and, and I went back. Um, my wife became pregnant. She was a senior in high school. We ended up getting married. And, and we both went to college full-time, and I worked full-time. We lived on campus in Springfield, Ohio. And again, I'm still chasing that, right? If I get enough money, I'll be happy if I become this. And my self-esteem is so low at that time in my life. And I would sit in law school thinking, you know what, I don't belong here. And if I get the wrong answer, the professor's going to call on me, right? Hey, Lawson, what's the answer to this case? I'm going to get the wrong answer, and then y'all going to know what I already know. Why is he here? He's not smart enough to be here, right? So my self-esteem was always low. I, I just always felt like, um, like everybody was better than me. And I'm always trying to prove myself, right? And then my ego would, would, would kind of balance that, right? In order for me to balance my low self-esteem, I have to act like I'm the baddest man in the room. So when I was in law school, I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. But everybody kept saying, no, no, man, they don't make no money. If you want to make money, you got to do corporate law. And back there in Cincinnati, Ohio, at that point, I went to University of Cincinnati Law School. At that point, they weren't hiring any black lawyers in large law firms. There was none. There was no female lawyers or female partners at these large law firms. It was just white males. But I was determined. I was like, okay, even though I don't want to practice corporate law, I'm going to get the best grades I can. And I became the first black lawyer at the uh, largest law firm in the city of Cincinnati called Taft Sustainance, and Hollister. So, you know, all the lawyers, it was like uh, 200 lawyers. All of them went to Harvard, or Yale, or University of Chicago. Here I am with my little, you know, little black guy with the University of Cincinnati College of Law degree. And I'm already feeling like, you know what, do I, you know, Again, I don't belong here. My thought was, even though I don't want to do corporate law, if I'm making six figures, I'll be happy.
0: Ken confused success with happiness, but that emptiness, the void inside, was something money and fame could not fill.
1: I got a Taylor May suit. I got a a 5,000-square-foot home. I got a Porsche. I'm under 30 years old. My wife, is. we got two kids and one on the way. You would have came up to me and said, hey, Kenny, man, you got it made. I just saw you on the cover of the local magazines. How do I tell you that I got everything that I ever thought I wanted to make me happy, and I got a hole in my soul, and I feel like something's missing? I don't know what it is. How do I tell you that some nights I go to bed thinking that my life is great? I wake up in the morning, and I feel depressed, and I start thinking, is this what life is about? And nothing's happened in between the time I went to bed thinking my life was great and the time that I woke up that morning. Nothing's happened. Other than I can sit there and lay depressed. I don't tell you that. When you ask me or when you say to me, man, you got it made, I don't tell you that, man, you know what? It may look like that, but, man, I, really I'm messed up, right? I'm not really bothered to that extent, but, you know, I'm deep down inside, there's something missing. And I don't know what it is. Because, see, up until that point, my thought is if I get this stuff, I'll be happy. Now, when I get it right, and I'm not.
0: Did your wife know um, that that you were feeling like that? That that even though you were surrounded by so much amazing, amazingness and great kids, that you had this hole inside of you still.
1: No, because it doesn't look like it's a spiritual hole. Because my thought was, well, maybe I don't have enough money. Maybe the reason why the hole's still there is because I just ain't got enough. Right? It, it doesn't seem like th- th- that you fix it from the inside. It seemed to me like you had to fix it from the outside. I mean, I see the commercials. I see the the, the, the fancy cars and everybody being happy once they get this new car. You know, or people in, in these, these nice clothes and, and going down to, to Saks Fifth Avenue. You know what I mean? I see that when they get this stuff, they're happy. And Mark Twain said it best. He said, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Right? You know, why are you here? And, and not just why we here right now doing this podcast, but why am I here on earth, period, right? When I find out why, that becomes just as much as important as the day I was born. I remember my wife was still in school, we had two kids on the way, and I had $2,000 in the bank because I was paying all the bills. And I called her, and I said, I'm I'm quitting. I'm going to start my own law practice. She said, you know, uh, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to practice criminal law. And she said, well, how do you know um, that you're going to be any good? You never tried a case, right? And and, that's, and to me, I really mean this. I think the part of our journey is to find out what our gift is. And the other part is to give it away. And I do believe God has given each of us a gift that's unique to us. That my gift is my gift and your gift is your gift. And what prevents people from, from achieving or doing with, what their gift is, is fear. Fear of failure, fear of economic insecurity, fear of what you think about me. If I get out there and do this, right, and I tell people, well, I want to go to law school. What? Well, I want to do this. Man, you must be crazy. I'm going to leave this law firm making six figures to go out and start a practice, and I ain't never tried a case. Are you out of your mind? And like I tell my students, I said, you know what, when it's your gift, it ain't going to make sense to anybody else. It ain't supposed to because it ain't their gift. It's yours. I just knew I was going to be good at it, right? And so I am try- So I went back and told the partners, look, I'm leaving. I'm giving you guys notice. And they- I told them the same thing I told my wife. They said the same thing. You must be crazy. I'm running this old, oh, God. It was the, the right, I mean, th- this place was infested with raccoons. It was just a nasty office building in the ghetto, right? That's the only thing I could afford. I couldn't afford a secretary. And so I remember starting working in that little law firm. And I wasn't making much money, but I was in the moment. It used to be when I worked a job that I didn't like at that law firm. I couldn't wait till Friday came. I was like, "Thank God it's Friday, right?" Then Saturday, I'm you know I'm feeling good. Saturday and Sunday night, right around the time sixty minutes come on, I get depressed. I'd be like, "Man, we gotta do this crap again," you know. And I <laughs> did not want to go in Monday, right? When I started doing, wait, you
0: don't do that now. <laughs> I thought everybody does that now about Friday.
1: When I started doing what I love to do, which is going in the court and arguing, the weekends were too long because the courts were closed. I couldn't wait. I mean, I, and so I was in the moment, right, going back to this hole. Once I got all that stuff, you know, and, and I was still unhappy, I said, well, maybe the reason why I got this hole in my soul is because I don't know who my parents are. Because in Ohio in 1963, they had what they called closed adoption records. That meant that whoever your biological parents were, once they gave you up for adoption, they could never find out who you were, right? And then you got a new birth certificate through the court, and whoever adopted you would never know who your biological parents are. Now the records are open, but back in 63 they were closed. And so the only thing that, that you could do to go find your parents was to go to the adoption agency that, that you know did your adoption. Mine was Catholic Charities. And they would give you two bits of information. They would tell you what hospital you were born in, and they would describe your parents. They would give you a physical description. That was it. Now, if you went out and you was lucky enough, like a needle in a haystack, to find your parents, then they would confirm it. But you had to do all the work, and it was like, it was impossible. And so I made an appointment to go down to Catholic Charities, and um, I was still at Taft. So right when I got my job at Taft after law school, it was my first year working at the law firm at Taft, sustainson Hollister, I said, I'm going to find my mother. And so my wife and I, we went down to the Catholic Charities, an elderly white lady named Rhoda, who was a, my caseworker. And she, you know, she had a little fowl in front of her, and she was sitting across from me, Lynn, the way, you, you know, the way you're sitting across from me and my wife. And she said, what, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm trying to find my mother. I really wasn't concerned about my father. I wanted to find my mother. And she said, okay. And I said, well, what hospital was I born in? And she said, Kenny, you were born in uh, Hamilton County, Ohio. I said, okay, what hospital was I born in? And she said it again, Hamilton County, Ohio. I asked her a third time, and she gave me the same answer a third time. I said, you know, being a lawyer, I'm like, you know, I'm going to use that, right? So I said, look here, lady, I'm a lawyer, and I know my rights. You got to tell me what hospital. And she was a very nice lady, and, she, you know, she paused, and she said, Kenny, you were born at Longview Mental State Institution. And she said, your mother was in the mental hospital when she had you. Then she said, and you're half white. She said, your mother's Italian, and I didn't know that i right. just think I'm a light-skinned black guy, right? And so I remember being at college. I was at Wittenberg University. And I was always, you know, a hellraiser. So I was at Wittenberg University. I was a president. Of, it was, a, like, mostly white school. I was a president of the Black Student Union. I'm leading protests. I'm, like, black power. And this lady <laughs> telling me I'm half white, I'm like, man, I've been fighting against myself all these years, right? <laughs> so she said, yeah, I my mean, mother was Italian. She said, your mother went into the uh, Longview Mental Institution when she was four months pregnant with you. And what I did was I would go to work at, at the big law firm, right? And I'd check in, like, in the morning, hi, how y'all doing? Then I'd sneak out, and I'd go down to probate court. And I'd go through all the probate records looking for any lady with an Italian last name that had been probated into the mental institution. All they had was on big, thick phone books, right? So I'd gather all these names. I'd write them all down. I'd come back, and my secretary, she was in on it with me, right? So i come back to the office. And so we start calling all, you know, we go through the phone books, See if any names match, then we start calling people.
0: How many are you talking about that in a short window of time, right? You're only looking at about a year.
1: Yeah, but it was a lot of people that was probated, right? And so you don't, and, and so it was a lot. So, you know, how do you call somebody and say, hey, you know, I see that you used to be in a mental institution and, you know, I got a question for you. Did you have a baby by a black guy in 1963? Oh, you know no. what I'm saying? <laughs> so they start hanging up on you shit. So what <laughs> you get? you got to come up with a story. We call and we say something like, you know, um, we we're working at Longview Mental State Institution. We we're trying to upkeep our records and just to check on the status of some of our former patients. And we see that Sally Jane was here, you know what I mean? And did, did, was Sally pregnant? And so we did this for months. So finally... I found a lady in California. She's like, yeah, I was. she's Italian. I was uh, pregnant by a black guy, had the baby in 1963. And so I, I, I went to get me a ticket to go to California. I stopped by Catholic Charities to see Rhoda. I was so proud. I was like, Rhoda, I found my mother. She's like, yeah, you did? I was like, yeah. She said, what's the name? I told her the name. She's like, no, that's not your mother. I burst out crying because I'm like, you know, when you're little and people ask, you, you know, how come you got adopted? Deep down inside, it's like they didn't want me, uh, and so I would make up stories like when my mother died in a car accident, my father died in Vietnam War, you know, and these good people took me in, because how do you tell kids, you know, or anybody, even yourself, that your parents just don't want you, right? And so she went to give me some tissue, but she had a legal pad on her side of the table, and I, I looked over it and I could see D O M twelve twelve fifty eight date of marriage December twelfth nineteen fifty eight. So what I did then was I went down to the public library, and and back then, if you apply for a marriage license, they publicized it in the newspaper. And so I looked for any lady with an Italian last name that applied for a marriage license in December of 1958. And then I took all those Italian names back down to probate court in one match, and that was Stella Angelo.
0: Well, you did all that investigation. That That's impressive.
1: That took, because that took then, months. Because back
0: you have microfish, right? Or a phone that's, book. That's, we no the, computers.
1: The, yeah, so the so, right. So you had to go in the court system, in the probate court. You had to go through all those cards and stuff like that. Then you had to go get the, the, the physical files and go through them. And so I went back. I saw Rhoda. She's like, yeah, that's your mother. And so uh, nobody knew if my mother was still living or not. And so uh, we went back to, me and my secretary went back to the phone book. And we started calling the Angelos in the phone book. And I got this lady from Kentucky, uh, and she said, yeah, uh, I know who your mother is. I don't know if she's living. She said, I was married to your mother's oldest brother. Your mother's the youngest of nine kids. Uh, Your grandparents came from Sicily. They immigrated from Sicily. And your grandfather died when your grandmother was pregnant with your mother, anyway. Uh, She says, but um, my husband, her brother, oldest brother, died years ago, and I haven't been in touch with the family. She said, well, I do want to tell you this. Uh, she said, I always felt bad about this. She said, when your mother came home and told the family that she was pregnant with you, my husband, your mother's oldest brother, broke her collarbone when he found out it was a black man that got you pregnant. Uh, and then um, because we're Catholic, uh, your mother was put into the institution. And uh, she said, but you have a cousin. So I called him. His name was Bud. So I called Bud. When I called him, I said, look, they knew that Stella had a son. They didn't know who he was because of, right? And so when I said, you know, I'm Stella's son, like that, and I'm trying to find my mother, he said, oh, you Ezra's boy. And I said, Ezra? He said, yeah, Ezra Charles was your daddy. And Ezra Charles was a heavyweight champion since 1951. He said, what happened was your mother used to go out and party all the time and she drank a lot. Uh, and your father had retired from boxing. He was working as a bouncer at a nightclub in northern Kentucky. Your mother would sneak out over there. He got her pregnant. And so then uh, he says, now, she's still living, and he gave me the number to my Aunt Marie. And so my, my my mother's sister, so I called, my Aunt Marie lives in Cincinnati, so I called my Aunt Marie. She's like, if you want to meet your mother, she goes to Hardy's Restaurant, downtown Cincinnati, every day at 12. She said, but she's still mentally unfit. My mother was staying at a halfway house of mentally ill people, which was two blocks from my law office. My mother had been two blocks in downtown Cincinnati from me this entire time. <laughs> so, aunt Marie, she said, your mother still got a lot of problems. She says, now, I'm telling you, down at that fancy law firm, if your mother finds out your real name, she's going to be coming down there bothering you. Right? She says, so i tell you what, what I do. Uh, she says, I'll meet you down there at Hardy's Restaurant. Your mother's there every day, 12 o'clock, like clockwork. She says, I'll meet you down there, and I introduce you to your mother as my friend named Joe. And that way you get to meet your mother, uh, see who she is, and she'll never know who you actually are. Um, but at least you get to see her, and you'll be safe. So I remember going down there, and uh, I got halfway to Hardy's and I turned around and I went back to her. I was so afraid because I thought my mother was going to reject me. I got back and I and Mary called me later that she's like where was you at I was down there waiting you know I said well I was (laughs) I I said she said get your chicken ass down anyway so I went down there the next day and she took me to this table and and you know it was crowded because it was noontime and I remember looking at this lady sitting at a table by herself and she looked like a bag lady up until that point Lynn people had been describing you know my family had been describing my mother to me you know. All the ones I had talked to uh, trying to find, and they kept saying, oh, she was very pretty, you know, and she would go over there and dance, and her and Ezra would dance, and your mother was pretty, 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 right? And so when I seen this lady at the table, you know how you can look at somebody who's had a rough life and just see, you could just see it, you know, that that life is, you know what I mean? So I couldn't see, you know, I didn't see what they were saying. It was just like, she's just like a bag lady that just had a rough life, you know? And so my aunt took me over there, and she's like, Stella, this is my friend named Joe, and then my mother looked at me. She's like, hi, Joe, and she smiled. And I just said, "Mom, I'm your son, right? And she just, she burst out smiling. She called. She said, Tony, like that, right? And so I was like, oh, she named me. I didn't know she had named me, right? <clears throat> so it was like a relief. You know, I got, you know, a chance to spend uh, three more years with my mother. She developed cancer that was treatable. When I would go down to probate, court and look at her records uh, once they put her in the mental institution back then they dealt with alcoholism and drug addiction through shock treatment and just incarceration and so i mean for years they would give her shock treatment she would escape they'd catch her and put her back in shock more shock treatment more drugs and this went on for years right and so my mother was so afraid to go to the hospital to, to be treated for cancer because she thought they weren't gonna let her go and I would try to get her to go, and she's like, Tony, she's like, they're not going to take, take me. They're going to take me, they're going to keep me. She's like, I'm not going into, into uh, the hospital anymore. And she made a conscious decision just to, you know, slowly die. Um, but, you know, I think uh because I was with her in hospice her last days, I remember holding her hand until she passed uh, from this world to the next. And I couldn't let it go, you know. It was just amazing because... Obviously, you know, I was with it when, when I came into this world. And I got uh, a chance to be with her when she left.
0: You said you always had this hole and you worked so hard for so long to find her and track her down. When you finally found her and and she remembered you and you became part of that family, did that not fill that, that void that you talked about?
1: No, it didn't. And, and I think, again, that's why, you know, I go back and say now looking back on it, it's obvious it was a spiritual malady that I can only fix myself from the inside out, not from the outside in. I think um, another thing that happened, you know, w- with my mom uh, was she was still schizophrenic. So my mom was, you know, not just uh, suffering from alcoholism and drug addiction, but she also, you know, had some mental, some severe mental health issues. And so, you know, you could be talking to her, like you and I are talking right now, then she could just start yelling at you in the middle of the, you know, middle of the street. in the middle of a uh, restaurant, you know, it was just, uh, and it would be extremely embarrassing. And I tell you, uh, you know, after she passed away and I saw her in in her casket at her wake, that was the first time I saw the beauty everybody kept talking about, you know. At that point, you know, she was just at, you you know, she was at peace.
0: But of all Ken's biological and adopted family members, he was closest to George his brother.
1: My brother, George, he's two years younger than me. And so I'm paging my brother, and he's not paging me back. And so i doing it over and over again. And so finally, you know, uh, I went to work the next day, and my father came down, and I said, man, I can't find George, and he's not responding to my pages. But George is always the kind of person, he just go and get, he, he just leaves, he just, just, just what we call grab his hat, right? He grab his hat and just go off to his, another city for a day or two. I finally went back down to the condo, and, and uh, George had hung himself. He was hanging uh from case, and he left me a note on our kitchen table, and he left It was an empty bottle of Jack Daniels, and there was a CD of Brian McKnight playing. that' had been playing for a couple of days. And to this date, I don't think I've ever... I know I haven't had that much pain in my life. You know, it was just... Uh, it, it was just really painful, and and I, you know, because every time we would go somewhere, I would always to my mother say, "Take care of your brother. Take care of your brother." You know, that was the first time I felt powerlessness, right? Because to me, it was always something about if I got enough money, if I, you know, um, and anybody had a problem, I could throw money at it. Or you need me to pay your rent? You having trouble with your with your mortgage? Here you go. You you need me to call a judge to get, your, 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 get you out of trouble? What do you need me to do, right? See, I'm playing God and don't know that's what I'm doing. In other words, I think I can fix everything to make everybody, including my life, happy. And when George was taken from me, it was the first time I was like, there's nothing I could do to get him back. It was just horrible. And I really didn't understand it. What, would, what did George's note say to you? That he was proud of me. And I was thinking about that this morning. And, he, and it was just one line in there that says, I just drive the bus. And that was from a Richard Pryor movie. Richard Pryor's in this movie with Cicely Tyson. They were taking these kids across country. And um, every, time they, uh, every time they would ask Richard a question, he'd say, I don't know. I just drive the bus. And that line to me meant was he was telling me, um, I can't tell you why. I don't know why. You know, and, and I think, you know, when somebody commits suicide, my emotions went from guilt to anger you know, and not and really understanding at that time that he was in so much pain that the only way out that he could see was to take his life. You know, but uh, out of all the people on this earth, George and I, we, you know, he was the closest person to me, and uh, you know, I miss him dearly. You know, he was the kind. Of, I mean, now he he was very unselfish. You could ask George to do anything, and he'd do it. You know, uh, to be of service to people. And so the last time that I saw him, he went down to pick up my hat. He brought it back to my law office, and he came into my office, and I was on the phone. And he took the hat out, and he put it on my head, then he gave me a thumbs up, and then um, that was the last time I saw George. I mean, I called my mother, and it was like you know, and I had to tell her, you know, George is gone. You know what I mean? And I'll never forget that.
0: You said you were sad, and then you were angry, and that—that's a common thing I hear from family members of those who committed suicide is, is the anger, you know? Is that the anger because they left and they chose to leave?
1: The, the anger was, to me, at that time, how can you say you love us and you create this much pain? I remember telling my father after George passed away, I'm like, I don't know how anybody could do that. I don't know how anybody could be so selfish where they take their own life and do this. He got kind of disappointed at me. said, you never should say that, that you don't know why somebody would do that. And, and for the life of me, in my arrogance, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm too strong for this and all that. And it wasn't until I was deep into my addiction those last six months where I was just like, I mean, I truly did not want to live anymore. And I understood it. It was just like, I just, I want a way out.
0: The painful beginning for Ken Lawson. On our next edition of The Other Side of Paradise.
1: I remember waking up that morning and it felt like a mat truck was on my chest because then I realized all the damage I had caused.
0: He tells us about his rise to fame and fortune as a high-powered attorney and how drug addiction brought all of that crumbling down. What started it, how he was able to beat it, and how he still struggles today. I'm Lynn Kawano. Mahalo for listening.